Hey friends, would you please welcome Dr. Randall Balmer for part two, Evangelicalism and Paul. So I talked last time about evangelicalism, the, the origins, uh, going back to the New Testament, uh, the, the, the Gospels, uh, how it, the term evangelicalism became associated with the Protestant Reformation and Luther's rediscovery of the Gospel, how it uh, was uh, transmigrified in uh, the American context by the confluence of the three Ps, Puritanism, Presbyterianism and Pietism, and how it was reshaped by the first Great Awakening, and then in particular, even more importantly, really, by the second Great Awakening, and I think I kind of uh, uh, kept with it up to the end of the 19th century. Let me take a little bit of a different approach uh, since the, the turn of the 20th century. I think with a small amount of contrivance, it's possible to divide the 20th century in terms of evangelicalism and its attitude toward the larger society into four quarters. Four, you know, we're, this is football season, so we'll, we'll stick with the quarters, right? Four 25-year periods. And there are different characteristics of how evangelicalism relates to the broader culture at each of those 25-year uh, 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 periods. So first from say, 1900, 1901 to 1925, I would characterize that as an era of suspicion. That is, evangelicals are becoming suspicious of what's going on in the larger society. Part of that had to do with something I mentioned earlier, a higher criticism, the, the approach to the Bible, and, and the, the doubts that people were, were um, uh, casting on the Bible. Also, you had Darwinism, right? Uh, Darwin's Origin of Species, appeared on the bookstores in the United States in, on November 26, 1859. All 2,500 copies were sold out that day here in the United States. And I think it's probably fair to say that the effects of that book really were probably delayed by the onset of the Civil War. So it wasn't really until later in the century that evangelicals began to contemplate the effects of Darwinism on their own belief. Now, of course, taken to its logical conclusions, Darwin's scientific findings or his observations cast doubt on the literal reading of the book of Genesis, right? Um, now, we can. I, I'm happy to go into that take that detour, but um, I will just say in passing that I don't think that the first two chapters of Genesis were meant to be either science or history. It's part of the Hebrew literary tradition, and the purpose was to tell us something very important about the nature of God, the nature of the created world, and the place of humanity in that created world. It wasn't meant to be history, in my judgment. So these arguments about seven 24-hour periods, I think, really miss the point. Nevertheless, evangelicals in the early part of the 20th century were dealing or trying to deal with both higher criticism and its apparent assault on the integrity of the Bible, but also Darwin and his ideas. And so they became more and more suspicious of what's going on or what was going on in the larger culture. 1925 comes along, and the, the pivotal moment uh, occurs in Dayton, Tennessee, in July of 1925, the famous Scopes trial that takes place, pitting Ch Clarence Darrow against William Jennings Bryan in these, this uh, uh, contest, or at least apparent contest, over Darwin, uh, Darwinism, scientific approach to, uh, to the world, and fundamentalism on the, the other side. Um, 
what people don't remember about that trial is that actually Darwin won his case. That is, John T. Scopes, who couldn't remember if he'd actually taught Darwinism in the school or not, was nevertheless uh, convicted of violating the Butler Act and fined $100, which Brian uh, offered to pay, by the way, uh, after the verdict uh, came in. But Brian lost decisively in the larger courtroom of public opinion. He was portrayed mercilessly by, um, why am I blanking on his name? H.L. Mencken of the Baltimore Sun as this uh, anti-scientific rube. And by extension, many evangelicals thought that the larger culture had turned against them and was really laughing at them because of uh, Brian's poor, poor, poor performance in the Scopes trial of 1925. So this, that brings on the second quarter of the 20th century for evangelicals, a time that, where they moved from suspicion to separation, where they separated themselves out of the larger society. This is the era, for example, when, in particular fundamentalists, but evangelicals generally, separated out of mainline denominations that they thought had become too liberal. They started their own congregations, their own denominations, their own Bible camps, Bible colleges. If you looked at the history of, of, of most of the Bible colleges around today, they trace their history to the 1920s and 1930s. That's when they all began. Moody Bible Institute is a, an exception, but that's probably worth talking about, but we don't have time to, to get into that. Um, this is a time when evangelicals also uh, formed their own missionary societies, their own publishing houses. They are separating from this larger culture during this second quarter of the 20th century, roughly from 1925 to 1950. They construct what I, can, what call, what I call an evangelical subculture. That is, uh, uh, this sort of uh, um, hermetically sealed world of these various institutions, so that it was possible in the middle decades of the 20th century, and I can attest to this personally, and I expect maybe other people can do as well, it was possible to grow up within this subculture and have very, very little commerce with anyone outside of that world. Um, in, in, in my growing up, my friends were all associated with church, with, with my church. Uh, I had very, very few friends uh, beyond that subculture. And it was an intentional subculture to keep us separate from the depredations of the larger world. Politics was part of that. Evangelicals were not involved in politics, not, certainly not in any organized way. Many not even uh, registered to vote, because, in part because of the separatist thing, but also because of premillennialism, right? If Jesus is coming back at any time, why worry about voting? It's not going to do any good anyway, right? We're out of here. We're done. Okay. Oh, I have stories. To, oh, I better not. Okay. <laughs> um, anyone, uh, a quick one. Anyone ever see a movie called A Thief in the Night? Yes? You remember the good preacher in that movie? Anybody? My father. Uh, Don Thompson. Uh, actually, that's another chapter in this book. I'm going to sell some books. <laughs> 
another chapter in My Eyes Have Seen the Glory is a chapter following Don Thompson, the, the filmmaker, on uh, one of his movie sets and talking about him and talking about this film, A Thief in the Night. There's a whole generation of evangelical of evangelicals, many of whom were scarred by that movie, <laughs> A Thief in the Night. It, it depicts life on earth after Jesus has come back and uh, the, the tribulation sets in. It's a very particular interpretation of these biblical events, and it's premillennialist. It's uh, unmistakably premillennialist. Uh, Don Thompson, the filmmaker, was a, um, uh, was a member of my father's congregation. He was my Sunday school teacher. It, 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 I have, it, it, it gets deeper and deeper, but I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, so the second, dec- second quarter of the 20th century is separation into our own little world, our own little subculture. Roughly from 1950 to 1975 is the quarter of the 20th century I would, I would characterize as uh, engagement or cautious engagement. This is the era of Billy Graham. Billy Graham has his, his uh, crusade in Portland, Oregon in 1950. This is when he decides to form a magazine called Decision Magazine. It's also when he decides to go on radio and then later on television. And Billy Graham is significant in that he moves away from the narrow fundamentalism of his childhood and embraces, as I said earlier, a more broader, a broader more capacious evangelicalism. Uh, not condemnatory, not separatist, not militant. Uh, the fundamentalists never forgave him for doing that. I'll give you a quick illustration of that. Kevin uh, had on uh, the screen the, the, uh, a documentary I did for PBS on Billy Graham called Crusade, The Life of Billy Graham. And I, when I was doing, putting that uh, documentary together, I wanted to uh, inter- interview a fundamentalist uh, about Billy Graham. Now, what happened in 1957 is that Billy Graham went to, to New York City, to Manhattan, and held a nine-week crusade in Madison Square Garden. Uh, overwhelmingly successful. But in organizing that, yeah, it's the one on the right bottom there. In organizing that, he cooperated with the New York Ministerial Alliance, which included the pastors of some mainline Protestant denominations. The fundamentalists were furious. They never forgave him. So when I was doing this documentary, I wanted to interview one of them, so I wrote to Bob Jones Jr. down in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and said, I'm, uh, I thought he might be interested because Billy Graham actually did a semester of, of study at Bob Jones College uh, before he dropped out. <laughs> and that's a whole story in itself. And, and went down to Florida instead. Um, so I, went, I wrote to Bob Jones, and I said, I'm, I'm doing this documentary on Billy Graham, and I'd like to interview you for the documentary. And I get this very short letter in return, which I have somewhere in my files. It says, Dear Mr. Balmer, I don't know how to tell you that I haven't the slightest idea, slightest interest in talking about Billy Graham other than to say what I've just said. Yours sincerely, Bob Jones, Jr. So, well, that wasn't going to work. So I decided to go for a telephone call instead. So I tried to reach Carl McIntyre. And some of you know that name. Carl McIntyre was one of the, the uh, staunchest and flintiest fundamentalists of the 20th century uh, who died at the age of 96 just well, about 10 years ago or something like that. Actually, I, 
I wrote an article. I, was, I, I gave him the last... He gave me the last interview that he, before he died uh, for an article I did in Christianity Today. So I got him on the phone finally after trying many, many times. And I made the mistake of saying that I was doing a documentary for PBS. And he launched into this diatribe about how PBS was a communist conspiracy and so forth. And I never got my interview with any of those fundamentals. They were still mad at, at Graham for having... Uh, organized this uh, crusade in Madison Square Garden in 1957 and cooperating with the Ministerial Alliance. That's an, I, that gives you the sense of the separatism of the fundamentalists. Graham wanted to be more um, gracious and more accommodating to other groups, and he really uh, sets the stage in, in, for, for that. In the third uh, quarter of the 20th century, the fourth quarter of the 20th century, I characterize as an era of worldliness. And that brings me to the topic that Kevin has assigned for me, that is evangelicals and their political engagement beginning in the 1970s. What happened in the early part of the 70s is that in the fall of 1973, there's a remarkable gathering of evangelical leaders in Chicago at the um, YMCA on Wabash Avenue over Thanksgiving weekend, 1973. And these 55 evangelical leaders craft a document called the Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern. And I invite you to look at it for yourself. It's on the Internet. Just put those words in, Chicago Declaration, or the Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern, and make sure you say 1973. And what's remarkable about that statement, if you, as you read through it, is that it is entirely consistent with my characterization of evangelical social activism in the 19th and early 20th century, earlier in, the, in this evening. That is, they decried the persistence of racism in American society. They condemned the growing gap between rich and poor in American life. They talked about the tragedy, the scandal of the persistence of hunger in an affluent society. They condemned the persistence of militarism in American life. Remember, this was at the tail end of the Vietnam War, so that was very much on the mind of many people at that time. And they reaffirmed their commitment to equal rights for women. It's a remarkable document. What happens after that document is that not quite six months later, down in Athens, Georgia, the governor of Georgia addresses the law school graduating class of the University of Georgia Law School. And the governor of Georgia at that time was a man named Jimmy Carter, a self-professed, born-again, evangelical Christian, Sunday school teacher in the Southern Baptist Church in Plains, Georgia, Plains Baptist Church. Jimmy Carter gets up there and talks about his understanding of justice. And he said that his understanding of justice was inspired by two theologians. The first was Reinhold Niebuhr, who famously said that the sad duty of politics was establishing justice in a sinful world. And Carter has continued to quote that many, many times over the course of his career and his life. The second theologian he quoted was the famous theologian Bob Dylan, particularly Bob Dylan's song, Ain't Gonna Work on Maggie's Farm No More, about the plight of tenant farmers. He went on to talk about the importance of justice, talk about his own efforts to reform the prison system, 
the judicial system in Georgia, which he thought was unfair. Uh, the majority of the inmates were people of color, people who could not afford adequate legal representation in the judicial process. And he also talked about the persistence of corruption and special dealing in Washington and elsewhere. In the course of his remarks, he noticed one of the journalism, journalists covering the event disappear for a moment uh, out uh, in, in, into the parking lot and coming back. Initially, he thought that Hunter S. Thompson of Rolling Stone magazine was simply going out to refresh whatever adult beverage he was consuming that day. Turned out Hunter Thompson was going to his car to get his t tape recorder to record something extraordinary. A politician willing to tell the truth, willing to stand up to special interests. Carter announces his campaign for the presidency in December of that year and embarks on this long shot journey through the Democratic primaries and then finally to the White House in 1976. What's, what's, what's remarkable about that campaign is that he begins to bring evangelicals back into the political arena because he's speaking in their language. I remember this very clearly. Uh, I was in college at the time, and all of a sudden there was a candidate for president talking about being a born-again Christian. Are you kidding me? This is the language we use to, to define ourselves. Uh, a born-again Christian being taken seriously as a presidential candidate? And many evangelicals voted for Jimmy Carter, if for no other reason than for the novelty of being able to vote for one of their own for the highest office in the United States. My point in saying that is that evangelicals begin in the 1976 campaign to come back into the political realm, to discard some of their political isolation. That had been in place since at least the Scopes trial of 1925, and had been reinforced by premillennialism, the idea that there's nothing we can do to make this world a better place. All we have to do, all we need to do is just wait for Jesus to come back and take us out of this mess, which was essentially what premillennialism was, was all about. So Jimmy Carter takes the oath of office on January 20, 1977, and then what happens over the course of his presidency? Well, it's a long, long story. And uh, I invite you to, to uh, if you want, want more details, to read a, a stunning book uh, on this called Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter, which gets into his presidency and, and, and so forth, and, and all these things. Um, uh, a lot's happening in the late 1970s. You have persistent uh, inflation. Uh, the economy is uh, sour, won't, won't improve. Um, there are a lot of reasons for that. Then you have the taking of the hostages in Iran and so forth. And by the time of the 1980 campaign comes around, many of the same people who had voted Jimmy Carter into office turned dramatically against him. And one of the reasons I wrote that book was to try to explain why that was. The answer that's usually given is that evangelicals were concerned about abortion and the Roe v. Wade ruling, which was handed down by the Supreme Court on January 22nd, 1973. Many leaders of the religious right said that this is what had jolted them out of their political complacency. Uh, the fact that, that these innocent children were being killed by uh, abortion, by this uh, regrettable 
Supreme Court ruling in 1973. And even though they didn't want to get involved in politics, they felt, it was more, they felt morally responsible to mobilize against this slaughter of the innocents. Some of them even went so far as to characterize themselves as the new abolitionists, trying to draw a parallel between their opposition to abortion and the scourge of slavery in the 19th century that evangelicals had opposed. It's a great story, repeated many, many times by leaders of the religious right about how they became involved politically. It is also utter fiction. 1969, before the Roe v. Wade ruling, there was a meeting of a group called the Christian Medical Society and Christianity Today magazine to talk about the morality of abortion. The meeting lasted several days, at the conclusion of which they issued a statement saying, we really don't know. We really can't decide what is the morally right course in terms of abortion, whether or not abortion should be legal or not. Meeting in 1971 in St. Louis, the delegates, or messengers as they call them, of the Southern Baptist Convention in St. Louis, Missouri, passed a resolution calling for the legalization of abortion. After the Roe v. Wade ruling, several prominent evangelicals, including Wally Amos, w. A. Criswell, Wally Amos Criswell, uh, pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, one of the most famous fundamentalists of the 20th century, issued a statement praising the Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion as marking an appropriate boundary between private morality and public policy. W. Barrett Garrett, W. Barry Garrett of Baptist Press, issued a similar statement praising the Roe v. Wade ruling of 1973. The Southern Baptist Convention, having passed a resolution in 1971 calling for the legalization of abortion, reaffirmed that resolution in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade, and again in 1976. I call this the abortion myth. Abortion had nothing to do with the rise of the religious right. How did the religious right come about? It was a court ruling, yes, but it wasn't Roe v. Wade. It wasn't the Supreme Court. It was a ruling handed down by the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia on June 30, 1971, in a case called Green v. Connolly. Let me provide some context. One of the provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 calls for anti-discrimination anti-segregation measures in all public institutions. In Holmes County, Mississippi, as the desegregation orders were coming into effect in Holmes County, Mississippi, the number of white students in the public schools dropped the first year of desegregation from, don't quote me on the numbers, but something like 640 to 28. The second year of desegregation in Holmes County, Mississippi, the number of white students dropped to zero. At the same time, several churches were applying for tax exemption for their church schools, which we know as segregation academies. 
This is where white parents would send their children so that their children did not have to go to integrated public schools. Several families in Holmes County, Mississippi said, this is not right, and they filed suit. It's a long history of what happened to that court case, but it goes up finally to the district court in the District of Columbia in a case called Green v. Connolly. And the decision is handed down on June 30th, 1971, that says, in effect, any organization that engages in racial segregation or racial discrimination is not, by definition, a charitable organization. Therefore, it has no claims on tax-exempt status. This is what got the attention of people like Jerry Falwell, who had his own segregation academy back in Lynchburg, Virginia. This is what gets the religious right organized as a political movement. It had nothing to do with abortion. It had to do with the defense of tax-exempt status at segregation academies or segregationist institutions. What happens, the machinery of this, is that the uh, IRS then sends questionnaires out to many of these schools asking about their racial policies. One of those questionnaires goes to Greensboro, Greenville, North, uh, South Carolina, Bob Jones University. And Bob Jones University says, yes, we segregate. God tells us to segregate. The Bible tells us to segregate, pretty much, is what they said. And uh, we're not going to change our mind. Uh, and what happens then is that this case starts to go through the courts. And this is what is, serves as the catalyst for the emergence of the religious right in the late 1970s, not in 1973, as a reaction to the Roe v. Wade ruling. Evangelicals throughout most of the 1970s regarded abortion as a Catholic issue. It wasn't until 1979 that evangelicals began to climb on board of the abortion issue. How did that happen? What happens is that uh, once they had mobilized to try to resist the IRS in the tax exemption cases, there is a conference call among the various leaders of the religious right, and Paul Weyrich himself, Paul Weyrich is the architect of the religious right, Paul Weyrich himself told me this directly, and I asked him point, point blank about this. He said, what happened is that there was a conference call, they said, we have the makings here of a political movement on this tax exemption case. What other issues can we talk about? And according to Wyrick, several suggestions were made from the various people on the line, on the phone line, and finally somebody said, how about abortion? And that's how abortion became part of the agenda of the religious right in the late 1970s, not in direct response to Roe v. Wade in 1973. Now, I'm not taking a position, I'm, I'm happy to do it, but I'm, I'm, I'm not here to, to say which is right or wrong. Uh, I happen to think that abortion is, is reprehensible, but... I want to make the point that it was not abortion that got these people interested in politics. It had nothing to do with abortion. It was in, instead the defense of tax-exempt status for Bob Jones University and other similar segregated institutions. Now, the logic... Now let me get into the logic here a little bit. The defense on the part of Bob Jones University and other places was, we don't accept any federal money. Therefore, the federal government can't tell us how to organize our, our, our um, schools, can't tell us who to fire and who, who not to fire and so forth. And by the way, I remember this growing up. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, my father was a minister. 
for 40 years, and we would very often on Sunday evenings in particular have presidents of Bible colleges come through to raise money, recruit students, and so forth. And they had this shtick, you know, talking about their place and so forth. But one of the things they all said is, we don't accept any federal money, therefore the federal government can't tell us who to hire, who to fire, who to admit, not to admit, and so forth. This was just part of their whole shtick. Bob Jones University tried to make the same case, but the flaw in that logic is what? Sorry? Tax, yes, tax exemption is a form of public subsidy, right? Absolutely. Now, I, the example I give is, is uh, uh, before I moved up to Vermont from Connecticut, I was pastor or rector of, of two different uh, Episcopal congregations. And one in particular was in, in Washington, Connecticut, and St. John's Episcopal Church uh, was right in the, by the town square on the top of the hill in a fairly affluent community. We paid no property taxes, no income taxes, no taxes other than Social Security for, for employees in, uh, of, of the church, which is standard. But we still benefited from the services in the community. So if the place had caught on fire, the fire department would show up and put out the fire, even though we didn't pay for, for fire protection because we didn't, didn't subsidize the 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 municipality to do that, which meant that everybody else in the community had to pay a little bit more to make up the slack. No, I'm not saying, I'm not taking a position on if that's good or bad. Actually, I think it's probably appropriate, but that's a whole other conversation. But the point is that tax exemption is public subsidy. I mean, I, I, you, you can't argue around that. I, if anybody wants to try, I'll, I'll listen, but you, you, you can't argue around that. So when Bob Jones University said, we're going to keep our own racial policies and our tax exemption, the government appropriately said, no, you can't do that. Well, what happens in that case? That case goes all the way to the Supreme Court in the fall of 1982. And at that point, the Reagan administration was prepared to argue on behalf of Bob Jones University that it could keep both its racial policies and its tax exemption. The outcry was so great that the Reagan administration backed away. The following May, the, ha- the decision was handed down eight to one against Bob Jones University. And my little footnote on this is that the sole dissenter in that case, that is the sole justice who defended Bob Jones University, was William Rehnquist, the man later, Reagan later elevated to chief justice of the Supreme Court. I'll let you do with that what you want to do with that, but uh, that's what happened in that case. So when we talk about the religious right, and people say it, it began in opposition to abortion. It's, it's, it's utter fiction. It, it did not. It began as a way to defend segregation, essentially, uh, in places like Bob Jones University and, and others. Now, uh, I think I've got to go move to today in about three minutes, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I, this has been an odd, strange trip in this uh, presidential election year. <laughs> and we're not there yet. We're not through it yet. Um, and uh, people have asked me, and I think Kevin at least indirectly has asked me, how is it that evangelical leaders are supporting one of these candidates? Who... <laughs> and not the other. Well, the, you know. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
So I actually took, I, I tried my hand on it I, I, at this, and I, I wrote a piece of the Washington Post about this. My argument was that, and it is, that the problem for the religious right is that they sold their soul to Paul Weyrich and to the Republican Party in the late 1970s. And by the way, they did so to cast one of their own, Jimmy Carter, out of office in 1980. There's many, many ironies in all of that. And if you want to get into that, I can recommend a wonderful book. It's called Redeemer. And and in so doing, I think evangelicals traded away their birthright, their birthright as taking the part of those on the margins of society. So Ronald Reagan gets into office, what's the first thing he does? One of the first things he does is revise the tax codes so they're overwhelmingly favoring those who are the most affluent in society to the detriment of everyone else. This is when the homeless, homeless scourge begins in earnest in American society uh, after the revision of these, these tax codes. And so when that happens, the religious right is silent because they'd already sold their soul to Paul Weyrich and to the Republican Party. And for most of the time since 1980, the Republican Party's most reliable constituency has been evangelical voters, white evangelical voters. I want to be careful to point that out and people who march in the ranks of the religious right. So in 2016, when you have a candidate who is the nominee of a party that has claimed for the last several decades to be the embodiment of family values, three times married, twice divorced, who knows what else in all of that, you have evangelicals who have either gone silent or become complicit in the campaign of this, I'm sorry, horrible man who represents everything inimical, in my judgment, to biblical values or or evangelical principles. And I think it has to go all the way back to the late 1970s when they threw their lot in with Paul Weyrich and the far-right reaches of the Republican Party. And having done that, they, can't, they feel they can't retract. They can't, uh, they, they can't make amends. And so they're stuck with a Republican nominee who uh, I think is a pretty pathetic uh, example of, of evangelical values and evangelical uh, principles. So that's the short version, I think, of where we are right now. So. You want me to keep that in the MP3 when I post it online? Oh, I, no, I'm, I, I, that's fine. Okay. I, 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 stand by my, <laughs> I, I stand by my words. <laughs> All right, thank you okay. for sharing. Um, please come have a seat.